0: This is episode 41 of the Immunology Podcast, Autoimmunity and Cancer Immunotherapy with Dr. Vijay Khatru. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Vijay Khatru from Harvard Medical School on the podcast to talk about his research on cancer immunotherapy and the role of co-stimulation in autoimmune diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first...
1: Do you do immunotherapy research? Like myself, Stemso Technologies offers products and protocols for immunotherapy research, uh, including T-cell isolation, activation, and expansion reagents. You can use the ECSEP T-cell isolation kits to isolate highly purified T-cells in as little as 8 minutes, and you can follow up with immunocult reagents designed for human T-cell activation and expansion. Learn more about stem cells, optimized protocols, and reagents for immunotherapy research at www.stemcell.com forward slash T cell minus therapy.
0: So, Brenda, do do you guys do Halloween in the Netherlands? Like, it's apparently becoming a global phenomenon now. It used to be an American holiday, and now it's everywhere.
1: I mean, people do always like the uh, excuse to dress up and do some fun uh, parties. So I I would say that it's kind of becoming a thing. But I I think I know there's a lot of people that don't completely accept it.
0: Did you go to a Halloween party or dress up?
1: I did not. I did not. Not this time. Uh, sad Mm. sad to say how about you
0: well so it's my son's birthday on
1: halloween uh
0: (laughs) so it's like a week of festivities but yesterday all the neighborhoods kids got together there was like 30 or 40 kids they all scoured the neighborhood for candy of course we dressed up as well so my wife went basically as belle from beauty and the beast and i went as a pirate with a full outfit not just like a hat and a shirt but a shirt, pants, boots. Oh wow! Overcoat, tricorn hat, bandolier, rapier, pistol. You know, you know, like I do.
1: I mean, um, you lost the chance to go as the beast. I mean, you already had like the the that, half of those half of those items. Kind of apply almost. No?
0: But the general <laughs> rule is whatever we have in our house for LARPing, we then uh, pop on for costumes. But then our kids get to pick what the costume is for each of us. Typically.
1: Oh really? Fun. Very nice. Very nice. And what did your kids address up as?
0: So my son was a Minecraft warrior, uh, you know, with, with netherite armor that was enchanted. And my daughter was the princess in black, which is a, uh, a, a kid's book about a princess oh. becomes a superhero.
1: Okay. Pretty cool. I saw a lot of posts on Twitter about, you know, scary science uh, 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 dress-ups, uh, dress people dressing up as reviewer number two, you know, the worst of your nightmares or um, the correction of your PI, you know, out of your, of your worst fears. So that's also, I don't know if that's kind of sad or ingenious in a way.
0: Well, reviewer number 2 would be a hilarious. I don't know, but like your your feedback from your PI, is that supposed to be a positive mentoring environment that is a virtuous circle <laughs> of continual improvement and production?
1: Yeah. That's that's why you, that's when the the dream becomes a nightmare when that doesn't happen, you know. It, it has a double sense. But yes, ideally shouldn't be this way. Oof. So, talking about Um, comments and remarks on some other people's research. Let's talk about some other people's research now.
0: Are you gonna be a reviewer number two today, Brenda? Is that what I just heard?
1: No, I'm gonna be nice because I really like the papers I'm discussing and I appreciate the work the scientists have done and how they brought it to the world, so I'm all all in. Well,
0: we'll pick one you wanna go with and I'll pick a terrible segue to to pop off that one.
1: Okay, I'm gonna start with first story. it's a small story, but I think it's very nice because it's a bit of a detective work. And uh, it's a paper that comes from uh, the group of Adrian Liston. And um, he, together with Stephanie Humble baron at the uh, Catholic University in Leuven in um, Belgium, uh, they have this, this paper. First authors, Julika Neumann, Erika van Nivenhofer, and Lara and Lara Terry, uh, published in Cellular and Molecular Immunology that's called Disrupted Calcium Homeostasis and Immunodeficiency in Patients with Functional IP3 Receptor Subtype 3 Defects, a mouthful. Basically, in this this, uh, work, they analyze two patients that have some severe immunodeficiencies um, um, from birth, and they kind of try to find out, they find out what is kind of wrong with them in a way. They have, a, they have very rare mutations that affect calcium um, kind of transport from the uh, endoplasmic, endoplasmic reticulum. And I think we all know that calcium uh, signaling and mobilization is super important for immune signaling and also other, other very important processes, particularly when it has to do with uh, um, neuronal, neuronal communication. You also need calcium to kind of move from A to B to to bring a signal. So people that have defects in any part of the of the of the any part of the pathways that involve calcium signaling often have uh, neurological, um, uh, yeah, neurological uh, pr- problems. And often these mutations are not viable at all. Uh, but you do see patients that have uh and there's a couple of uh described um genetic uh genetic disorders, including what is called uh charcoal tooth, which is a neuropathy i think is is very fairly known as a as a consequence of uh calcium signaling and think it has other also other uh um, other kind of uh, reasons to to happen, but I think this is one of one of them. So, going back to immunology, which is our point here, they, uh, T cells and B cells, when they, for example, have activation through their re- the receptors, amongst the signalings downstream is the activation of um, uh, a second messenger, uh, inositol 145-triphosphate, 1, 4, 1, 4, so commonly known as IP3, and this IP3 gets uh, Release in the cytoplasm and finds its way to bind to the receptors, ATP three receptors that are on the surface of the ER, and they activate the they function by releasing calcium storage from the ER into the intercellular uh, intercellular compartment, and then this in in. in in time, also results in the influx of calcium from the extracellular compartment, so that in a second, a kind of a second stage. And basically, you have calcium going into the cytoplasm from the ER and from the outside. And we know that this is important for activation downstream of NF-kappa-B and fat pathways depend on this calcium signaling to happen. And so... What are what are, what did they discover of this patient? They have there's two patients, a person, a, a two year old uh, boy, and a 36 year old male that both have severe immunodeficiency. Particularly, the first patient, patient one, had such a severe, the defi- uh, severe immunodeficiency that he had a, um, a stem cell transplant at the age of six. So this person uh, doesn't have its ori- the original immune system, but is but he still has uh, neurop- neuropathy uh, associated to these genetic defect. On the other hand, this other patient uh, has thrombocytopenia.
0: Thrombocytopenia. Yes.
1: So, and received a, uh, even a splenectomy at 19 years old. So it's like very severe. It's so very interesting to see how these people have to cope with this rare genetic diseases. Uh, but... This person still has immunological issues, hypoglycemia. Um, so that is, has a low IgG, has a recurring infections, um, but it does. But this person does not have any neuroma, neuromuscular disorders that can be uh, detected. So, but what they find when they do a genetic analysis of this, if these patients, they see that both of them have the very unlikely circumstance of having two different defects in, in, in one of the um, uh, receptors, the IP3 receptor subtypes, IPR3. So these, these people, they have a, a heterozygous mutation. They have two different mutations in both alleles of these receptor subtypes. They're different, but they share one of them. So there's one of these variants... Uh, is kind of fairly common in, in population, about 6% of allelic frequency. So these two people got that from their, from their fathers. And then f- they either have, uh, patient number one had a de novo mutation uh, on the other allele, or uh, the second patient got a, uh, also a defective allele from uh, his mother. So they both have this very unlikely circumstance of having basically their whole uh, IP three or uh, receptor three uh, mutated in a way or another, and kind of they do a lot of analysis when when they they show using calcium flux analysis that uh, indeed this um, this in, this uh, mutations result in um, they, they they result in a deficiency in calcium uh, in calcium signaling. But what's interesting is that the patient that had the most severe um, clinical presentation that had to have a stem cell transplant actually has the, the, the one, the de novo mutation that this person has actually is located within the, the channel of this, this calcium channel and really has results in a complete um, deficiency of calcium signaling in the uh, transport from the ER to the cytoplasm. On the other hand, the other patient that has a fairly less severe um, um, presentation of the disease, this person has issues where the mutations are located in in, in areas that have to do with the regulation of the ion channel, of the calcium channel. So in the case of the second patient, they also look into the signaling when, for example, T cells are stimulated through a TCR, and they show again that this... Uh, mutations in the re- in, in the regulatory uh, domains of the calcium channel results in impaired uh, activation downstream of TCR signaling. But if they they can force the function of the channel if they use, for example, ionizing, uh, uh stimulation, showing that it's really about the the regulation, the normal regulation of the channel. For the first patient, unfortunately, one that had the very severe mutation in within the functionality of the channel. This person didn't have any BBMCs left because they had a stem cell transplantation, a hematopoietic stem cell tra- transplant years ago. So they can also look only look into their fibroblast derives from this patient. And that's how they look into calcium signaling in, in this patient and show that it is very deficient. I think what is very interesting is that from this from this work, they started from the the Finding out what using uh, whole uh, exome sequencing, where the mutations were, what was the the functional, uh, and and from that from the mutations, they went into a functional characterization, and they showed that because there is because of the uh, deficiencies in this particular calcium uh, uh, um, channel and the way that it responds to uh, stimulation, particularly through a TCR. That this explains a lot of the immunodeficiencies that these patients have. And they suggest that uh, this particular receptor should be, uh, IP3 receptor should also be considered as part of the plethora of uh, mutations that can result in immunodeficiencies because it had never been uh, discovered before in this way.
0: So does that mean in some cases then for these less severe types they can start drugging it to overcome the regulatory deficits? Is that kind of the goal or do you think it's going to be too toxic?
1: Yeah, I don't, they don't uh really go into that. Um I wonder because the thing is that the activation is so how can you in which under which conditions can you possibly drag the regulation of this channel, I'm not sure. Because yeah. ideas I would respond specifically to TCR signaling, for example, and yeah, mm, they don't discuss it in the paper either.
0: Yeah, it's one of those like, so now that we know, what do we do about it question?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, well, I guess I'll talk about infection. I don't have a segue for calcium channel. okay i go we can talk about no i do we can talk about antibody genetics
1: all right it is genetics so
0: genetics immunogenetics all right this is functional antibodies exhibit light chain coherence first authors david jaffe last authors wyatt mcdonald came out in nature october 26th so um this paper uses a combination of computational analysis of genetic sequence plus a little bit of flow analysis to demonstrate one very specific notion which is that the light chain follows along the heavy chain and so what they found is that if you take a antibody sequence whose heavy chain is hundred percent the same as another cell whether it's an effective mem- a memory cell or a naive cell but it's much more prominent in memory cells and we'll get to that in a minute a memory cell who not from not the same clone a different clone right so either the same person who's seen the same antigen and has a polyclonal and pool with the same genetic sequence for the heavy chain or a different person because they use different people and same people looked at it, all of this The light chain, so for those different cells with the same exact heavy chain sequence, the light chain is the same 80% of the time after VDJ recombination. So the heavy chain, they don't know how, but the heavy chain is essentially dictating collapse in the viability of the light chain. Now, why do they think there's a collapse? Because this is only really true in memory cells, not naive cells. So naive cells that have a basic, you know, um, heavy chain, right, that are the same, those have some coherence, I I forget the exact number because they didn't spend a lot of time on this, but it's not nearly as strong an effect as the naive population. This is all about memory antibodies. So after developing memory, whether that's a plasma cell or a memory B cell, right, the The heavy chain dictates the light chain.
1: So this, this means that cells that have undergone a somatic mutation, preferentially those that have a specific combination are the ones that are go further.
0: Those that have a specific heavy chain sequence across people, different people. If you and I have the same B heavy chain sequence in one of our B cells for an antigen, right? The exact Mm -hmm. same sequence you have an 80% chance of the light chain matching perfectly between the two of us as well huh. for that cell.
1: I'm, do, I'm surprised that we're only learning that now.
0: There's no, how do you, so we're just now developing the ability to parse out individual immune cells and sequence mm. them in their entirety to look at the sequence post-recombination. Right. And they had to go, so this paper then, like, has a couple thousand, a couple hundred donors, I think, in the first one, and then pulls in other test sets and does a whole bunch of math. But they they point out that this is actually really hard to do and get the data for. And mm-hmm. then they at post, they, like, at one point use a 10x set of data that they had from whole genome sequencing and 10x to, like, mm-hmm. this validation set for what they found from other people's work. This huh. is non-trivial.
1: Uh, it's a very interesting, because then it means that there's a bunch of... B-cells in the naive repertoire that have the wrong combination and they will prob- probably do anything.
0: Yeah, they're never going to do anything.
1: So there's only certain, there's a lot of combination of, of heavy and, le- and and light chain that are functional enough to make the B-cells, but they're not functional enough to actually recognize anything useful. Correct. They're just there taking yeah. space.
0: Mm-hmm. But not enough, sp- obviously not a ton of space, because then they're not the ones that go and walk in when they find
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah interesting i've i've kind of it's, mind it's, blown that we only learn this now that's why i thought uh, it was a really cool yeah. paper
0: like like yeah. there's not a lot more that i need to describe go read it if you want to figure out all the details essentially but but the, the top line sentence or two the title of the paper is the paper and they they spend a couple figures you know counting through this and getting the point but done basically
1: that's pretty cool all right all right uh, I'm looking forward to see what we do with this information. If like, what are the implications of this? Yeah, if there are any, I don't know. I just find it very curious. Yeah,
0: you know, they do a lot of math modeling in here that I'm not going to do, like. Transitive linking of mm-hmm. the coherence of groups, and show that the less, the less genetically similar the the heavy chain is, then the, the then so too does the light chain fall off. But 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 fundamentally, heavy chain dictates light chain.
1: Just quick question, do they look into like the protein structure and whether that they're like favorable?
0: No, they don't. They can't.
1: Okay, they can. But
0: huh. it's 100% sequence homology. So it means it has to have the same structure.
1: Yeah, of course. No, but I wonder if like then when you when you have the 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 final ant- antibody like there's this combination of residues that right that the only way the work is if you have this combination that only come when you combine we're not able to do
0: antibody structure function and uh prediction yet but yeah that, that, that they actually talk about how that's like the frontier of this type of work that they're not there yet
1: cool all right very interesting so talking about uh paradigms and changing paradigms and uh Correcting, well, I don't know, but th- I think this paper I'm going to talk about now also makes a good, it's a good solid uh, work uh, that helps our understanding of a very important uh, immune checkpoint therapy, which is anti ctla four monoclonal antibodies, and um, it helps us understand their mode of function because I think there's a lot of I don't want to say controversy, but there's sometimes people are not sure. What kind of uh, mode of mode of action they can actually uh, give to this antibody? We know that anti ctla four was, uh, in fact, the first uh, approved checkpoint inhibi- inhibition uh, therapy. Uh, no, it was de- de- developed famously by Jim Allison. Now he won the Nobel Prize for it and everything. Uh, and the first commercial. A uh, product was called Ipilimumab. It is called still, and although it's not as used now, because I think I would say that anti-PD one checkpoint inhibition has uh, taken over because often CTLA four uh, antibodies are quite toxicity can be quite difficult to manage. But it did start the the revolution of uh, immune immune checkpoint inhibitors and a lot of the immunotherapy. Um, so this paper is called Anti-CDLA-4 Antibodies Drive Myeloid Activation and Reprogram the Tumor Microenvironment Through FC-Gamma Receptor Engagement and Type 1 Interference Signaling. And uh, it was published in Nature Cancer. First authors, uh, Ido yofer Tomer uh, Landsberger, and Adam Yalin from the lab of Ido Amit at the Weisman Institute of, of Institute of Science in Israel. So he does really... Uh, good, really amazing work on single-cell RNA-seq and uh, all that has to do with with this, Uh, and also collaboration with Sergio Quesada at University College London. Uh, They have um, also amazing work on uh, immunotherapy. So um, when I was talking about controversy, there's this idea that of uh, CTLA-4 as a checkpoint, blo- as a checkpoint molecule. Uh, and sometimes people put it together with PD-1, kind of as these checkpoints that appear in T-cells and are part of T-cell inhib- and result in T-cell inhibition. But the truth is that CTLA-4, I always insist, is a, it has a very, it's a kind of fundamentally different molecule than PD-1. We know that PD-1 has an intracellular uh, signaling, so it has a phosphatase. Uh, module, and it can really interfere with downstream signaling from the TCR, from uh, cost from like C28 and such. And we know that uh, engagement of PD-1 has a very specific uh, uh, effect on T cell activation. On the other hand, CDLA-4 seems to mostly function through binding to uh, CD80 or CD86 on antigen-presenting cells, and preventing these two molecules to bind to their kind of uh, true ligand, which is CD28, therefore interrupting co-stimulation to T-cells, and that's how, um, in a way, it it reduces the stimulation of of T-cells and interferes with normal antigen presentation. However, and I think a lot of people kind of are stuck with that uh, view of CTLA-4, but the truth is that even after CTLA-4 was approved as a, as a therapy for, for melanoma uh, at the start, um, it became clear that the main, the main effect of anti-CTLA-4 antibodies was not through preventing the binding of CTLA-4 to CD80 or 86 on antigen-presenting cells, but rather... By other mechanisms, um, and one of them, well, early an early study showed that the the one that the the IgG I've said Ig2A if I remember correctly, uh, sorry IgG1 IgG1 um, actually had the uh, effect of depleting regulatory T cells in the tumor microenvironment of, uh, of of treated mice. I show this in mice, and I think it's also being shown in humans. Um, and that's actually a very strong effect. And that is, um, has been really related to the mode of action. One of the things that epilimumab does is uh, deplete T-Rex that within the tumor microenvironment express a lot of CDLA-4. So are they, they're the main cells. Like CDLA-4 is mostly expressed by regulatory T-cells in the tumor microenvironment. Not so much by CD8, actually like activated CD8 cells as, uh, as often is, 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 is assumed. And so in this, in this case, for this paper, they want to kind of build on that idea that CDLA-4 antibodies do more than uh, just preventing binding of, of cd 886 or just depleting T-rex, and they show that there's actually an extra layer of complexity, and I thought it was very interesting. So what they do is they have basically a mouse model of tumor, of, of um, a fibrosarcoma, and they have two different anti stil 4 antibodies. One that has, they have different IgG, uh, um, um, different IDG types, so one is IDG1 that is known uh, that is sorry, igg 2 a That it's known to bind to FC FC uh, receptors in, uh, in 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 macrophage and myeloid cells, and it's known to deplete regulatory T cells. And it's the one that really promotes complete tumor rejection in this mouse model of of, of tumors. And there's another, the mouse IgG1, that does not have this. A depleting functionality does not bind very well to Fc receptors, and actually does not really help uh, against uh, the tumor in, in in the mouse model. So actually, if you give mice this particular anti CD4 antibody, they won't uh, they won't act against the the tumor. And what they show, they do a lot of experiments, and they show that indeed this binding to the Fc receptors has the effect of not only depleting regulatory T-cells in the tumor microenvironment, and this is done very quickly, like within 24 hours, the t are gone. But, but the, And they show that there's a whole very, very profound remodeling of the tumor microenvironment that goes beyond the, the depletion of t They see an increasing filtration of neutrophils, although, although they show that they're not required for tumor uh, clearance. But what they see uh, that is very important is that they see a huge increase or they see an increase in, in, the, in the ratio of monocytes of pro-inflammatory monocytes. They see a reduction in tumor-associated macrophages that are usually uh, anti-inflammatory. And they show by using um, mouse models in which they deplete the T-Rex by themselves, like using a toxin receptor, that is not only the T Rex, t- depleting T Rex alone does not do the job. It's the fact that these myeloid cells are d- detecting the CTLA4 antibody on the surface of T Rex. They're phagocytosing they're phagocyting uh, these the, the, this, this, uh, antibodies and T Rex and whatever is being expressed. And they are upregulating interferon 1 signaling. And this all together uh, is key to the, the mode of action of this anti-CTLA-4 um, antibody that actually uh, induces tumor rejection. They, they, look, they look at the whole kind of tumor microenvironment, and they basically show that. They show that only this antibody, not the only one, the one that can actually bind to FC receptors, um, causes a whole revamp of the uh, pathways that are associated with activation, so it has an in- increase in activated monocytes, a reduction in suppressive myeloid cells, and um, that is, is mediated by interferon type 1 signaling. They So they show this in the mice. They also go into some human data, and they they find a correlation between the upregulation of, of interferon type 1 uh, responses in patients that respond to treatment uh, that, that associates with, with, with basically, the with response. And so this is just that this is really, uh, it's not only about deplete, and it's not only about re- uh, reducing the, the inhibition of antigen printing cells, it's not only about depleting the T-rex, but it's also about activating these myeloid cells and remodeling the immunosuppressive environment within the tumor. So again, it's very important because it's so important for us to understand how are these things working? We know they work. And this might also be related to the toxicity that CTLA 4 antibodies are known to have, which sometimes uh, really makes, it, makes them hard to use for therapy um, at, at kind of really fun, uh, sufficient amounts to, to induce a tumor response.
0: So does this mean that we didn't know the mechanism of the drug ahead of this really in the same way?
1: Yeah, I don't think, it, it's not that we didn't know the mechanism. I think people already showed, knew that uh, they were depleting T-Rex. I think people didn't think so much about T-Rex when uh, epilimumab was approved because this was approved like in the 20, in 2011, I want to say. I oh, no, don't was was the first results of clinical trials. But at that moment, people were very focused on what their CD8 Cytotoxic T cells were doing, and they're like, oh, they're expressing in CTLA4. Oh, CTLA4 is a checkpoint uh, in in, in their activity. Uh, We should and then kind of worked. Um, But I think people often, especially those that are very focused on cytotoxic T cells, forget how much uh, epilemoma is actually targeting other cells in the in the tumor microenvironment. I mean, CTLA4 is expressed by activated CD8 cells, but they're not the main expressors. In the same way, T-Rex also express PD-1. So when you do PD-1, anti-PD-1 treatment, you're also targeting T-Rex to, to an extent. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're always there. I'm or telling you. They're always there. They're always making their mark.
0: All right. Well, T-Rex have been implicated in what I'm discussing. Next. How about that for a segue? <laughs> Great. Uh, all right. This one is unadju. Vanted intranasal spike vaccine elicits protective mucosal immunity against SARS-CoV viruses.
1: Yay! SARS, so yes. our, our COVID paper of the week.
0: It is, it's, and it's intranasal antibody. Intranasal you know, sorry, vaccine.
1: I just want to say this is the first time I hear the term sarbicovirus. Isn't it is just the, me?
0: That is the subfamily of coronaviruses. I part.
1: know, I know but it's like, I had to read, I saw the, the title of the, of the paper, it's like huh?
0: All right, well, the know. authors got to give him props is Ting Yang Mao and last author is Akiko Iwasaki. Yeah. Science, mm-hmm. 20th of October. So long and short, if you, so the idea here is what is the best booster essentially? So we've talked on the podcast before about intranasal vaccines and how it creates a nice IGA response. So this paper really gets into how you'd want to deploy it in real life. Um, we know that intranasal like, uh, of the mRNA vaccines can actually be lethal in mice at high doses here because they create this crazy response and don't work right way. So what they looked at instead was like, what are you going to do, right? So they made they have two intranasal vaccines. One is a a encapsulated, not lipid, but it's in a, in a different chemical substance mRNA vaccine or just a spike protein that's just recombinant that they blow up there, and then they compare as well, do I just give that, or what if I do a, either IV to start with, but they then shift to IM, like in people, regular Pfizer vaccine first, one dose. And they show that the intranasal ones only really work well after the uh, parental mRNA vaccine first. But when they do go in, they work really well, they create a lot of good, happy IgA, and There isn't a huge benefit for death at all. Like if you do this or just a regular booster, mRNA, you get the same small bump. And it's a pretty small bump after the regular vaccination anyway. But they show that transmission drops. So they'll take hamsters and they put like vaccinated, they put vaccinated ham, they infected vaccinated hamsters and then put them next to unvaccinated hamsters. Or sorry, so so they took, and, they, and so they did that, right? So they took the people they were showing that the people who were sick with the virus, the hamsters right, who had had the intranasal vaccine, transmitted the virus less to others by using hamster system. So basically, the idea here, they validated both of the uh intranasal technologies were just fine they couldn't find a difference they then waited a longer to extend out like oh this was like a one month apart vaccine series they waited like multiple months and said well you know people kind of have waning immunity so what if we wait longer and then do the the booster so basically it didn't matter delayed responses were fine so 56 days later if they waited um or 84 days later excuse me and they still saw effects afterwards. So basically, if we converted boosters from just the standard IM to an intranasal, you may get a lot more benefit out of it. And you could start blocking transmission, which makes sense because right now the boosters after the third one, like, you know, so you get your primary series and a booster. There's not, they haven't had any really good data showing extended, like increased prevention from serious disease. And it's always been this question of what you do about uh, preventing transmission. But the antibodies take a while to pop back up after you're sick, and they're not in the right spot. Like IgG antibodies aren't great at preventing transmission, even if you have a pile of them, Uh, but IgA are. And so this idea is get an intranasal, if we did an intranasal booster, you could potentially block transmission. And it still provides a second, that same little bump in severe disease protection.
1: I mean, that sounds great. I think it's so important to find a way of reducing transmission because that also doesn't help um, just... Otherwise, people that are not vaccinated or not responding well to the vaccines are, yeah, on their own, basically. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting that it is an unadjuvanted uh, vaccine. Unadjuvanted,
0: right. They find that the adjuvanted ones, that's what's causing people to get, or animals to get severely ill because it's such a strong immune response. Yeah. So it's unadjuvanted. And then, oh. um,
1: And it is the protein, not the mRNA. They did a
0: COVID-1 spike. So they were like, we don't have variant strains right now. So they did the SARS-CoV-2 primary series followed by a COVID-1 spike intranasal and it protected against COVID-2 just fine.
1: Huh.
0: So it's COVID, right? Preventing SARS-CoV-2. So there's still pretty good cross compatibility.
1: Okay. So we might get something that is against multiple coronaviruses. Right. I mean, this is really nice because I don't know if you saw that there were some results from using intranasal vaccination with the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine with the, uh, the uh, what's it? I forgot the ch- chimpanzee uh, dinovirus. Uh, for- i forgot what it's made of again but they didn't show very much effect that didn't really work very well for for intranasal vaccination which i guess was quite a quite a blow i guess they were hoping to uh use it in that way um maybe i would say it's probably immunity against the against the the vector um yeah. because they are made of viral vectors that are quite, uh, although they are not super immunogenic, that maybe they're immunogenic enough for the mucosa. Um, so I guess that at least we have a, a slightly different approach that might actually work. Yeah,
0: this is relatively non-immunogenic. Like the vector is non-immunogenic, obviously the antigen yeah. is, but it's a little bit potentially easier.
1: Yeah, yeah, because if you have the if the vector is immunogenic, then the engineer makes it uh, where it has to go. So that's that's a problem, and, and yeah, okay. Um, I see that, uh, yeah, Akiko Wasaki was a lot lately in the, in the media and and, then promoting this, this two-step vaccination. I hope that people take her seriously. Maybe we can actually get this moving.
0: Maybe we can get her on the podcast. We should. Well, speak of talking to people soon. We're going to be talking to Vijay Kuchuru at, uh, Harvard Medical School in just a minute. But before we get to that, I know everyone likes all these interviews we're doing and there's more. There's plenty more of them online at stemcell.com slash immunoprofiles, where you can get all types of different immunologists telling you their stories, discussing their research, and voicing their thoughts and opinions on current topics in immunology. So again, check it out at Stem Cell Technologies website, stemcell.com slash immunoprofiles.
1: Hi, everyone. We are uh, talking today to Dr. Vijay Kutcher. He is Samuel L. uh Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School senior scientist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and co-director of the Center for Infection and Immunity at the uh, Brigham Research Institute. And the uh, Kutru lab has many lines of research, but I think what I find very interesting is their research on autoimmune diseases, particularly on an understanding of cells such as uh, T17 and pathological cells. Also has some major contributions in our understanding of Uh, cancer immunotherapy, and the role of TIM3 and related proteins in T-cell exhaustion. And we're going to be talking about today about T-cells and other topics, hopefully. Uh, Dr. Kutcher, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for being here. All right, Brenda, do you want to go first since I've gone first this last few uh, podcasts?
1: Thank you. That's very kind of you. How a gentleman. So as I mentioned, one of your contributions uh, is to, you were the first, or your lab was the first one to describe the conditions uh, necessary to differentiate a very special type of helper T-cell, which are the TH17 T-cells. And I, I was hoping that we could have a kind of a quick discussion about the importance of this T-cell subset and how uh, how was your, how was the, the, the conditions around uh, the, at the time that you, describe this, and how has your work with uh, TH17 cells and other uh, T cells that mediate immunity has, has been in your career? So
2: the uh, discovery and the conditions of this, uh, conditions for, uh, differentiating T cells into TH17 cells was the interesting one. And we obviously uh, had... Uh, identified and others had actually described that the infran gamma-producing TH1 cells were not the drivers of autoimmunity. And so everybody was looking for what are the cell types that induce tissue inflammation, autoimmunity, and critical critical for inducing autoimmune disease. And uh, we had made a FOXP3 GFP knock in the mouse. And uh, we were... And this was done, work with uh, Mohamed Oka and Estelle Batali in the lab. And we were validating this mouse. And we were putting TG-beta on the T cells and they will upregulate FOXP3 and they become GFP positive. And I asked uh, Mohamed Oka a question. In fact, Estelle Batali was looking for these cells and what are the differentiating conditions for the cells that induce autoimmunity. And Muhammad Oka, actually, I asked him, he says, in tissue inflammation autoimmunity, there are all these T-rex that accumulate at the site of tissue inflammation, but the disease goes unabated. And uh, what do the pro-inflammatory cytokines do to T-rex? And he uh, bought something like 23 different cytokines, and I still don't remember this, I got a big bill. and uh, He kept adding each of these cytokines to TJ beta to see what it does to induction of FOXP3. And what was surprising, there were three or four different cytokines that inhibited induction of FOXP3. And then the question was, what are these cells becoming? And the two other cytokines, IL 6 and IL 21, induced these T cells that were IL 17 producing. And this was the first time, one of these aha moments saying that, that it is not actually the IL-23, which was supposed to be inducing the differentiating factor for TH17 cells, because we could never differentiate naive T cells with IL-23 uh, into TH17 cells. And the aha moment was that the two different cytokines, TJ beta and IL-6 will work together to induce uh, differentiation of IL 17 producing cells at the same time inhibit the generation of FOXP3 positive T-Rex. And so, the paper, in fact, uh, that was so smooth in terms of the way it went through the review process. Uh, so, when we saw this, we wrote a paper. We didn't realize there were other papers in the works at the same time. And uh, this set the stage for that there was a, a reciprocal relationship between T-Rex and TH17 cells. And during inflammation, you suppress generation of T-rex, and you induce these highly potent effector T cells that induce tissue inflammation and autoimmunity. That's how it actually was done. In fact, we didn't know what we were going to find, and ultimately found that the two cytokines were inducing the cell cell subset.
0: So to go along this line, um, you mentioned DIAL-23. Which, which clinically we know is 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 a target of several drugs now for uh, combating autoimmune disorders or enhancing inflammatory disorders. If you want to get technical, Um, and then we also know IL, you know, TH seventeen, IL seventeen producing cells, and this IL seventeen is considered a bad actor for autoimmunity. But interestingly. IL-17 antibodies haven't panned out clinically as composed to IL-20 as opposed to IL-23 antibodies. Do you talk about that a little bit and where, where, where that linkage is between IL-23, IL-17, and why hitting 23 works but hitting 17 doesn't when T17 cells are the big bad wolves in the house? Yeah, very good question.
2: So if you really look at the, you raise actually clinically and physiologically a very important question. If you look at a normal organism, uh, both human and mouse, uh, and you find the bucket loads of TH17 cells normally in the gut, yet you have no inflammation at all. So it basically raised a question. Immediately after we published our paper, we saw these cells and we wondered if the TH17 cells are such bad actors why don't you see the uh, inflammation in the gut because they are there and they are present in every animal we have seen so far. And this gave the concept that there may be different types of TH17 cells. The one that you find in the gut uh, are not pathogenic. In fact, their major job is to control uh, the microbiota invasion. And they also promote by production of IL-17 and IL-22 also maintain the gut barrier functions. Uh, So they are the good guys that are generated and are at the mucosal surfaces and in the skin to maintain the barrier functions. And if you neutralize IL-17 and uh, this experiment was done in humans, where they tried to neutralize with ciscanumab, they tried to neutralize, uh, IL seventeen in the in the patients with IBD and the disease got worse, not better, and we suspect that the this is the reason for this is because you are getting rid of these good TH seventeen cells that are maintaining better functions, which is already affected uh, in the IBD, both Crohn's and uh, colitis patients. Now, going to the second step uh, is that the, uh, if you differentiate T cells with TJ beta plus IL-6, you generate these TH17 cells that produce both IL-17 and IL-10. These cells are non-pathogenic, and these are the ones you see in the gut. But then, in order to make them pathogenic and disease-inducing, you have to further add in IL-23. What IL-23 does, it suppresses the IL-10 production and induces the production of infant gamma and GM-CSF with IL-17 in these TH17 cells. And they become highly pro-inflammatory and pathogenic. And these are the cells that you see at the sites of tissue inflammation. In fact, IL-23 is the most critical cytokine and that, in fact, switches or differentiates these non-pathogenic T17 cells into the disease-inducing T cells. If you look at the genetic linkage of autoimmune diseases, and you don't see linkage to, in many diseases, to T beta or IL six, but you often see it to IL twenty three. Take example psoriasis in the skin, and uh, Shogun syndrome in. In IBD. In fact, it was one of the first ones, was the IL 23. And in MS, also, while talking to all the MS folks, and some of the data uh, has been published, is that you have linkage to either IL 23 itself or IL 23 receptor signaling components. And so that's why, re- going back to your question, is that that's not all IL 17 cells are bad. In fact, if there's anything I can say, is that there are both good IL-17-producing cells that you are in your gut. And then there are these highly prone from the pathogenic TH17 cells that you go in the tissue inflammation induce autoimmunity, autoimmune reactions. <clears throat> and there's a corollary to this in humans. In fact, we came from autoimmune side and we call them pathogenic, non-pathogenic. But there's a corollary to this in humans where uh, Frederica Sluusto had this remarkable paper showing that the, uh, there are these CCR6 positive cells that are induced in response to different infections. And they produce IL-17. The cells that are against uh, Staph aureus, and you know Staph aureus resides on mucosal surfaces. And if you look at their uh, transcriptional profile, they look exactly like mouse, non-pathogenic t 17 cells. And then, then she had a second subset of T cells, CCR6 positive cells, IL-6 producing, IL-17 producing, I apologize, with infant gamma and gm production. And these were specific for Canada albicans. And as you know, the fungals, fungus uh, fun- fungi are very infiltrated infection, you need a highly, highly strong uh, T cell response. So they may have risen, uh, because of response to different infections. And uh, as you know, in mucosal surfaces, if you have a staph aureus infection, you don't want to have very severe inflammation. And non pacific TH17 cells are able to control the infection. Uh, but for uh, Canada albicans, which is a very highly infiltrating infection, you need very potent uh, TH17 responses. And uh, those are responsible to different infections. And we have seen them in, in normally at homeostasis. You have these non-pathogenic T17 cells, but at the in terms of autoimmune and autoimmune reaction, you have pathogen T17 cells. Where IL23 plays a very important role. Does it answer your question? Is there a long-winded answer to your really uh, interesting question. It does. Thank
0: you. <laughs> All right, Brenda. I think you're following up right.
1: Yeah, I just have. I I must have done. I don't know. I lost count how many Th17 differentiations I did during my PhD. <laughs> so I'm acutely aware of of this of 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 this protocol and the importance of these cytokines. And I also very aware. And I think related to your your uh, allusion to non-pathogenic Th17 cells. And I just wanted to to hear your take on it. The fact that often these cells are expressing. Also, Foxp3, you know, and more, more kind of going into this idea of the two two sides of the same coin to some extent. Um, what is the relationship between Th17 cells like? More um, kind of, you know, when it, more related to their yeah development. So between Foxp3 positive express uh, T cells and uh, pathogenic or non-pathogenic Th17 cells, or how come? How does it make sense that they are both, for example, uh, induced by uh, TGF beta? Yeah, yeah.
2: Very, very, another very good question. So uh, we have a paper under review. In fact, this is where we address exactly the question: What's the relationship uh, between uh, TDEX and non-pathogenic Th17 cells? Because uh, they Come from a similar system, and uh, during induction in tissue inflammation, normally at homeostasis, obviously you need regulatory T cells, and these regulatory T cells uh, maintain homeostasis, and in fact they prevent and uh, induction of tissue inflammation and autoimmune reactions. But if there is an infection, and you don't want to have regulatory T cells around because you want to promote inflammation to clear infection. And the infection may induce both uh, induce IL 6 and IL 1. They will both work together with TJ beta. And they can, in fact, inhibit the induction of regulatory T cells or induce regulatory T cells and induce TH17 cells. So, to directly address what's the relationship between regulatory T cells and TH17 cells, and we did this uh, whole series of ataxic time lapse uh, analysis of Tregs. Uh, TH17 cells, the non-pathogenic ones, uh, the pathogenic TH17 cells and TH1 cells, because there is this relationship between the, because the uh, non-pathogenic TH17 cells induced by TG beta with IL-6 will produce IL-10. Uh, we don't see as much, if you have nfil IL-6, you don't see as much FOXP3 in them, but you can see them if there's not enough IL-6. But the pathogenic ones that are produced by, with IL-23 plus IL-1, uh, they are produced a lot of infant gamma and GMCSF, and they have some similarities to TH1 cells. So doing the ataxic profiles, what we really saw that the pathogenic and non-pathogenic TH17 cells were actually distinct. They have a totally different ataxic profile, and they are very distinct. And the time is the way they come up is very distinct. Then, if you compare them to the Tregs and our Th1 cells, the non-pathogenic Th17 cells are very close in their ataxic profile, like Tregs, except that they don't have functional Foxp3 there. Whereas pathogenic ones that produce IL17, GM-CSF, and infant gamma in their chromatin look more like Th1 cells. So the straddle between these two opposite ends of if you have Th1 cells on one side and t on the other side, so the non-pathogenics are closer to the t and pathogenics are closer to the Th1 cells.
1: I just need to one make one uh, comment. is that I when I meant to say that T's are uh, expressed in both FOXP3 and ROR gamma T, which is, of course, the transcri- transcription factor that... Often is used to characterize uh, T seventeen cells. So after I think I misspoke myself there, um, but yeah. So it's it clearly that it's very interesting to see that you can see this the how the chromatin chromatin is reflecting the the, the 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 journey of these cells towards their final differentiation.
0: As a follow up, and I want to talk about T- Tim in a second, but you, you talk about. IL-17 IL- cells almost having a, a, a T-reg, very closely related T-reg. And I was wondering, to go out on the limb here, we know that ILCs kind of mirror typical T-cells and ILC-3s mirror ILC- TH-17 is kind of how they've been mapped to. Do you yeah. think we're going to get a T-reg ILC at some point? So it's really interesting. It's an interesting question, something that I've
2: been thinking about because you have the ILC1s and ILC2s and ILC3s that are similar to Th1, Th2, and Th17 cells, but nobody has seen an innate TREG which doesn't have T cell receptor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we published a paper in Immunity uh, about a couple of years ago, where if you treat ILCs uh, with the alarmins plus CGRP, they do have some features of innate Treg-like features, including the whole module of FOXP3 uh, in them. I'm not trying to evoke that they are, these are these uh, equivalent to Tregs in ILCs, but you can see that they had very strong regulatory properties. But I think the Tregs themselves have innate-like functions. And they are produced and they go to the tissue sites. And they themselves, and there are a whole series of these papers that have come out. And uh, Michael Rosenblum had a paper showing the t rex that are generated, they can go to the tissues. And in his case, in addition to regulatory properties, they they will promote the growth of stem cells, air follicle stem cells. Diane Mathis had a paper on regulation of both the muscle function or repair muscle function, and uh, and and also the fat uh, re- regulation of adip- adiposity, and this is independent of their role in in uh, in immune system. And we have a story that we are writing up is showing that how. Uh, the T-rex themselves may be able to communicate directly with tumor stem cells and promote their growth. And uh, so it may be that the T-rex that are generated in thymus early on when they migrate to different sites of tissues, what, uh, what they call predominant tissue T-rex, they have specialized function similar to what we have observed for ILCs. So the question is, do we need ILCs to do the same thing when T-Rex themselves, when they migrate tissue there, become tissue T-Rex and maintain regulatory functions of homeostasis? So that's my take on one is that in some cases, ILCs, in fact, ILC2s, when they are treated with CGRP, they will acquire some of the functions of uh, T-Rex And then you have T-Rex themselves, they go to tissue, and they have ILC, or innate-like functions. So that may be the reason why, evolutionarily, you don't really see uh, ILCs with T-Rex-like properties.
1: Would you go as far as to say that in this case of this tissue-resident T-Rex, I think also particularly the story of the visceral visceral adipose tissue T-Rex, would you go as far as saying that it's completely independent or on their TCR receptor, that it doesn't matter what they're meant to recognize? It just yeah. matters that they have this particular phenotype that allows them to survive in the tissue and somehow they found themselves there and that's yeah. it.
2: Yes and no. Okay. In case of the adip- adipose uh, visceral uh, fat t in fact, Diane Matthews and Crystal Benoit uh, took the T-cell receptors and got overexpressed them on T-rex, and these T-rex allowed them to t- target the fat tissue. They, in fact, preferentially went to the fat tissue, so they must be, mm. uh, in fact, uh, embedded in the T-cell receptor and some degree of specificity to go to the adipose tissue and maintain their function. So that's one. But on the other side, I think that what we are seeing within tumors and what what Michael Rosenblum saw in the hair follicle, the uh, stem cells, the growth, I think that's independent of T cell receptor. So that's almost innate-like property that we were talking about. And, and, and it may be both in some cases, uh, the tissue T-rex may need the T cell receptor targeted at the appropriate sites. In other cases, it may be independent. Of T-cell receptor specificity
0: well you mentioned cancer at least once so we can use that as a segue but one of the other things you're, you're known for is your work on TIM3 and so I was wondering if you could give a little high level on what TIM3 is and then kind of jump into some of its clinical applications that's being explored um, which includes I believe uh, cancer therapy yes
2: You know, I think uh, since many of these uh, uh, listeners will be young students and postdocs, I just want to give you a little history of how uh, Tim3 was discovered, uh, because it's actually important to to know, and uh, it also hopefully will inspire uh, young people uh, when you think of an idea and you have to pursue it and to do it. So Tim3 was discovered uh, in the lab by making monoclonal antibodies to Th1 cells. We had an idea that if Th1 cells were inducing autoimmunity, how do we distinguish them and pick them from the tissue without having to depend on the cytokine, uh, intracellular cytokine staining? Because in that process, you kill the cell. So uh, two people in my lab, in fact, uh, uh, Catherine Sabatis and uh, Laurent Moni, took on this project. And they made 20,000 monoclonal antibodies against the cell surface of Th1 cells. And it took, we didn't have any robots, and it took two of them six months to do it. And at the end of it, we had four monoclonal antibodies. Two of those monoclonal antibodies were specific for Th1 cells. And two of them were few other molecules that have been published now. And these two of these molecules were staining uh, Th1 cells, but not Th2 cells. Together with Gordon Freeman, we cloned the gene. It was a novel gene called TIM3. And uh, in fact, we submitted uh, the paper for the first time, all excited, and, and to a journal, a very high-level journal, and they basically did not send it out for review. And just imagine, two of these people who have worked made twenty thousand monoclonal antibodies, screened through them, cloned the gene, expressed the gene, deleted it, and looked at its function. That this the journal did not even send it out for review. Obviously, we sent it to to Nature, it got got in. So the two piece of advice uh, is that the uh, number one, if there's a project worth doing and it takes a lot of time and energy and uh, in fact go for it at the end you'll find the gold and number two is the advice that if a journal if you believe in it and if a journal doesn't take it doesn't mean the discovery is bad I think uh, it may be an error in the judgment of the people who are reading and can't see uh, its potential so the students and postdocs should not give up. And you can imagine that the with the discovery of TIM3, uh, we've identified whole TIM family of genes, and it is indeed expressed on CD4 T cells and CD eight T cells. And if you look at every other paper today uh, that's working on T cell exhaustion, the terminal exhaustion is identified by co-expression of PD1 and TIM3. In fact, when the TIM3 comes up, uh, there is a decrease in the expression of the TCF7. And TCF7 uh, maintains stem like CD8 T cells. Those are the cells that respond to cancer immunotherapy. TIM3 comes up, there's an extinguishing, it extinguishes somehow uh, the expression of TCF7, and the cells become terminally exhausted. And uh, you can see them in chronic viral infections both mouse and humans, you can see them in the cancers. And it is now identified as a checkpoint molecule and in fact, a, a marker for thermal exhaustion. And there are multiple clinical trials uh, dealing with the blocking TIM3 and anti-TIM3 uh, in, in, uh, either alone or in combination with in fact uh, being tested. The place that where it seems to show uh, most efficacy is in myeloid leukemias, acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, which is MDS. Because we have found that the TIM3 is not only expressed on Th1 cells or CDAT cells, it's a checkpoint molecule also on the myeloid cells and DCs. And we believe that the TUM3 is allowing the escape of the tumorigenic myeloid cells from, and it's being co-opted so that the cells uh, are not detected by the immune system. And it also allows uh, the tumor cells to continue to produce low amounts of IL-1, which is a growth factor for myeloid cells or myeloid tumors without going through pyroptotic death. And uh, one of the first indications, in fact, that uh, phase two clinical trials are already done, and I think phase three is going to be uh, read uh, sometime next year, is that it's finding its place distinct from either PD-1 or LAG-3 or CTLA-4. It might be first uh, approved for myeloid leukemias, AML and MDS.
1: Just to quickly go in a little bit, kind of more in detail about this molecule. So we understand that, for example, other checkpoint inhibitors such as PD-1 act through a phosphatase domain that interferes with TCR signaling, with CD28 signaling. What do we know about the what happens under the hood for Tim-3?
2: Yeah, very good question. So Tim-3 does not have either ITIM or ITSM motif. And the same thing is true for LAG3. It does not have either ITM or ITSM motif. And there are two uh, uh, phosphates, 256 and 263, two two tyrosines that are phosphorylated uh, when TIM3 gets activated. In fact, those two two tyrosines are very critical for the function of TIM3. And we have done some of the signaling work. And in fact, it, together with Anna Anderson, we have uh, hopefully a paper coming out, writing soon, in in identifying how TIM3 regulates the function of uh, activation of T cells. And uh, we are finding that it binds to and brings together a very prominent E3 ligase and this E three ligase, in fact, inhibits uh, T cell receptor and costimulatory functions. So it is not your traditional checkpoint molecule, like PD one or CTLA four, where you have ITM motifs that bring in phosphatases. But it may be one of those molecules that, in fact, uh, w- works on both T cell receptor signaling and costimulatory signals and targets them for proteasomal degradation Uh, so that's it's that's a that's a story going to unfold soon
0: well i have a feeling we could keep talking for quite a while unfortunately um there there are time limits in the universe and we can't move fast enough to slow time down enough to uh to, to keep going so that being said one of the things we love to do at the end of the podcast is kind of ask not not a signaling question not a t cell question but but a question of our guests more in relation to life and so so for you if you had a hobby you could pursue you've always wanted to kind of go after but haven't had a chance because th17 cells were all consuming uh what would it be and why
2: yeah i i really would probably become a singer or a musician and uh I had an enormous interest in uh, in, in music. Uh, uh, but as you know, uh, growing up, uh, my dad would say that, you know, I have seen a lot of starving art- artists. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to make it as, as a career is not that easy. And uh, he encouraged me to pursue the pursuit of science. And that's how I actually got into science, but I would have uh, happily and easily become a, a classical musician of some kind.
1: I mean, we've heard that answer before from other guests of us, so that seems to be a topic, uh, like a theme across different researchers. Huh. I would, I would argue that given the numbers that of, of becoming a tenured professor, it also seems. Quite low <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: uh apparently it's harder to become a tenured professor at an uh, at a top tier institute than it is to be get in the national football league in the u s <laughs>
2: uh, well I did not know any of that, but for me the uh, uh, because students keep asking me about this 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 question and uh, if you love it and uh, people often i mean students at uh, the when I give lectures saying, that, oh, well, there is not enough money in it. It is not, we. it's not a balanced life. You had to spend so much time. And if you really love it, I think things come together. And I never thought that I will become a tenured professor or even a chair professor at, at Harvard. And uh, it's just that the, uh, I, kept doing things just for the fun of them. And uh, it kept working. So that was the other surprising thing to to me and to my wife. And, uh, and with the result, I mean, it just came kind of naturally fell in place uh, in spite of all the grants and in spite of all the... Uh, Uh, What goes with it? Uh, You do have to love it, then it doesn't feel like that you are working. Uh, The uh, the advice to students: if you really love it, everything will fall in its place. Uh, You will have time. uh, You will have uh, money. You will have fame, if that's that's what you're looking for. Uh, But you have to have passion for it. You can't do it half-hearted. And uh, one of the one of the interesting things I tell all my students, and they often ask me, uh, did you ever think when you started out that uh, you'll be so successful? And did it, the job turn out to be the way that you had imagined? And I often say that this job has turned out to be better than I could ever write myself. If I had to write a description of a job, this has turned out to be so much better than anything I could have ever imagined when I started out. Um, and I often give examples. This is what I do is I allow. And uh, if somebody tells me, when my boss comes to me, says, oh, Vijay, oh, I don't want you to work on t 17 cells or I don't want you to work on TIM3. I said, I will say to them, oh, come on, get serious. <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. Uh, if somebody told me that, the, well, there's not enough money, I, I will always say that I don't have enough time to make the money. If I had chosen that as a part uh, of my combination of things I do, there's a lot of money to be made. I say I go to all over the world and uh, I have friends all over the place And uh, the best part of the job is that you get to meet people from all different walks of life and cultures. And you see places. And the best part, I tell them that I didn't even have to pay a penny from my pocket to visit all these places. You get treated very well. And then the most and ultimate is that you get to work with the people who are intellectually driven; They are curious. They ask you questions, and your brain keeps ticking every day. There's no day that's mundane. I have no idea. I go to the lab how the day actually goes by. So I don't ever have enough of it. So it's actually a very good profession. Do whatever you want. Do it with passion, and you'll find success. That will be my advice to all the young uh, uh, listeners of this podcast.
1: Well, on that high note, we thank you so much for your time. And uh, thanks for joining. And we look forward to see uh, what all the research that clearly is going on in your lab will will come out. And we thank you for your time.
2: Thanks very much. Thank you for the invitation. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at @immunopodcast or via email at info at with feedback or to suggest guests or to want to come on the show. See you next time.